BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Happy New Year. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week's episode, A More Perfect Union. In today's deep dive, what's the upside and downside for the world of tech and the business of innovation when labor groups band together to demand change? Is it growth and prosperity or red tape and bureaucracy? And in our Courage or Cringe segment, Monday Night Football, Coinbase, and Kamala Harris. Are former NFL players turned commentators fonts of prophetic wisdom and meant to be respected? Or are they out-of-touch talking heads who detract rather than edify? Is diversity and inclusion a PR effort for Silicon-based tech companies? Or are they actually practicing what they preach? And is our VP-elect's recent comments about her childhood, which are eerily reminiscent to MLK's, an example of harmless coincidence or cynical plagiarism? This and other controversial topics on this episode of TDR. Happy New Year, Jesus. Happy New Year, Charlie. We took a week off there. Very well deserved. How'd you close out uh, the end of the year? Uh, it was good. It was it was nice to, um, I think, you know, shared it with you. Went out. I was outside a lot, like being outside um, in a very COVID safe way, just to be clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, got a chance to go to Joshua Tree. Never been there before. Was there a lot of people there? There was a lot of people actually to get into the park, but yeah. it's a massive park. So yeah. there is plenty of opportunity there to walk around and, and climb, you know, mm-hmm. rock climbing. It literally looks like someone, they just put it there like by hand. It's just, it's just gorgeous. That's awesome. So, yeah, I got a chance to do a lot of outdoor activities in general. Um, so I was pretty happy about that. Very cool. We went out to the snow. There's a place called Fraser Mountain, about an hour and change north of here on the five. And it's not like it's a uh, organized snow thing. It's literally like, you know, old school, poor version of poor man snow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Pull off to the side of the road. You get one of those little plastic sleds and just go down the hill. That sounds awesome. It was nice. It was actually nice, but it was good to get out. And we have, we've had that tradition for a number of years. But um, anyway, we're on the other side of 2020. We're now looking at 2021. Never thought that they would come. You, you, were, you were very uh, cynical about uh, the potential I, I, for I was. midnight to literally never come on 2020. There was literally like a massive storm like two days before the end That's of the true. year. That's true. That's <laughs> true. In LA, like, like five inches of, snow, of, of, of rain. Yeah. There was par- parts of LA that even got hail. I don't know if you yeah, saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have yeah. a family that, that lives <laughs> uh, in this area where they, they actually got hell. So I was, I was very skeptical that we were going to make it. So, yeah. we, you know, we, we did it, though. So we'll see. We'll see if 2021 is going to be better. Hopefully it will be. 
Any, uh, I know we closed out uh, last year with our kind of 2020 retrospective, but any 2021, uh, you know, commitments or uh, what do you call them? Uh, what do they call them? The like uh, intentions, New Year's, New, no, resolutions. Resolutions. You can tell how often I make them that I don't even know what they're yeah. called. I, honestly, I'm not a fan of resolutions. Okay. And the reason Fair for that enough. is I feel that if something that I want to do, I mm-hmm. just need to just do it. Nice. So I don't, I don't, I mean, I've, and I've done it before. Like I've, I've used them, you know, effectively where, um, I think one year I, I did the, um, oh, I'm going to get in better shape and it was around, I actually started it before. That's usually what happens to me. It always starts before mm-hmm. the actual end of the year. Um, so it never actually happens in the actual new year directly because the moment kind of gets in my head, I want to start doing it. But you're pretty in shape now. I I would say that there's the one, the one, the one that I do have is, uh, which with my daughter and I, we agree that, that we're going to do, or that I'm going to do a marathon, which I've never done. Oh, really? Surprisingly enough, I've never done that. Wait, Um, you've never done a, oh, cause you've done a triathlon. I've done multiple triathlons. Yeah. Um, isn't that harder than a marathon? It, it depends if you just like running for a really long time, you know, no. Um, right. So I've done multiple uh, half Ironmans, um, but I've never done a, a, a marathon. So my daughter and I have decided to start training together. Her, she's eight years old. She basically rides her bike while I, while I run. Nice. So we just started doing that. So the, the idea would be that she would actually bike ride 26.2 and Correct. you would run. It. Well, the, yeah, the idea is she's going to train with me for the marathon. So the actual day of the race itself, she won't be able to participate. Oh, okay. But that she'll actually do all the training with me uh, leading up to the race. But when you actually train for a marathon, do you actually end up running a marathon before the no, marathon no, or no? No, no, no. You never get that. That I think the longest distance, uh, maybe like 20 miles or 21 miles around there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, even for any of the races that I did as uh, the half Ironman, on the half Ironman, you do a half a marathon, mm-hmm. which is 13.1 miles. I think the longest I ran was maybe 11 miles, or I, I may have gone to 12. That seems like a lot. Yeah, but you never do the full the full distance. 11 is the most I've ever run in my entire life uh, in one, uh, you know, whatever, series or exercise or sequence. Um, and that was at the height of my running ability. Now I'm, I mean, I'm pretty in shape, but I'm not, I've just never been a runner. Yeah. I do have some intentions for the year. I don't All know right. if you'd yeah, call yeah. them resolutions, All but right, I've got three it. and they're of course in, 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 uh, as is uh, my style, I've made them all alliterate, alliterative. So they all start with the letter C it's courage, clarity, and communication. Those are my three things that I'm going to have as intentions this year. I like that. Now, how do you see those being, uh, like, reflected in action? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's all kind of related to the same thing, right? Courage of like saying things as I believe them to be and 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 being vocal about it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Just okay. calling it like I see it. Um, clarity with, and particularly in the work that we do, you know, being more um, intentional about being pres- clear and prescriptive as mm-hmm. opposed to uh, descriptive, which I have a, a more of a tendency to be. As you know, famously on this podcast, you know, where it may not be right, but it sounds awesome. Like that's right. the opposite of oh, what I'm trying it to do. Sounds awesome. Clarity, and then the last one, communication, because and that's more of a personal thing with my family and my wife, just about being more communicative and sharing more about the things that go on in my day. So those are my three, my that's three great. things. I think those are great. And I think we can actually get started with a few of those uh, just now. We're, we're uh, seems like we're kind of picking on Google again with our deep dive, but um, it's an interesting topic. Just lots of it, it sounded a little bit dry when I, when we first uh, started talking about it, but there's actually a story there that I think is actually pretty interesting. So, yeah. where shall we begin? Um, yeah, let's start with uh, with the main and most recent item that came up around Google. So, the New York Times reported that more than 400 Google engineers and other workers have formed a union called the Alphabet Workers Union. Right now, this group is affiliated with uh, what's called the Communications Workers of America, which is a broader union that represents workers in 
telecommunications and media in the U.S. and in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, this type of union is considered a minority union in that it represents a fraction of the company's more than 260,000 full-time employees and contractors. Now, there's a so, bunch of issues there yeah. in terms of what makes a minority versus a full, a full union. The biggest one is that for a full union, like they actually have to vote for it. Right. In the case of minority union, you don't. But, right? we, so but we're, s- we're using the term minority here, not in the terms of ethnicity. We're using minority in terms of numbers. Minority in terms of representations right. of the number of employees, and right? So it's 400 out of, basically, it's a pretty small number, 400 out of, of a quarter million. thousand. <laughs> And by, the, number, by the way, I remember we talked about Google's employees at one point, and I, I found a stat that said about 120,000. That must have been Google, not Alphabet. Well, maybe it, that was a difference. It could be, or it also could be related to, and this is part of the issue oh, here. Oh, no, it could be the contractors. The contractors, yeah, right? That's, that's a right. big one because they use a lot of contractors, right? And that's oh, part geez. of the, the challenge that you, that you see here. Um, that becomes, you know, part, part of the problem, right? Okay. Um, in any case, the reason why we thought this would be a really interesting topic to talk about is. So let's start with the first one, which is this is highly unusual for Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. right? So on the one hand, you know, a lot of us will think of Silicon Valley as being very liberal, but it has not been fertile ground for unions, right? Whereas normally liberal environments tend to be re- well, receptive to, to unionization. Yeah, I think people tend to... Or associate them with it. Right. Yeah. In broad strokes, if we talk about people that are liberal, you're going to be, you know, maybe more, more pro-employee, that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. in the case of, of Silicon Valley, it actually hasn't been. Now... What's interesting is the why, right? Now, one of the reasons why is that for many tech workers, they actually haven't been very interested in, in unions, right? And part of it is because they don't face the same kind of issues that most unions tend to focus on, which is wages, right? That's not really a big concern for most of these tech workers who are tend to be like really well paid. And then secondly is that they many times don't feel that these same unions are not mm-hmm. really equipped to address the concern that some of these tech employees actually have, which is more about ethics, and the role that technology more broadly sort of plays within society, right? So that's a really interesting uh, It's super point. interesting. I mean, is that a first time maybe ever in the history of unionization that that's been the core complaint rather than, that's you know, safe I, environment, yeah, wages, exactly. uh, benefits, things like that? Yeah, I think so, right? Because at Collective least, bargaining. Historically, the, the, re- the reason you would have union is to basically be able to protect employees from from management and, pr- and protect them in terms of uh, pay is a big one, work conditions. It's negotiating leverage, though, is what it is. It is. But yeah. in the case of t- the tech industry, Silicon Valley, individual uh, employees tend to have a lot of leverage, especially those that are highly skilled. Right. As a matter of fact, it's super competitive. Right. The more sort of skilled those engineers are, the more they're being sort of pushed from one place to the other. So in general, that balance of power at least in my opinion, has been much more balanced in the sense that when you have a strong engineer, people, these companies trying to mm-hmm. do whatever they can to retain them. Yeah. That's why you have many of these, these companies have so many sort of benefits that they have associated, uh, you know, for, for their employees. But there it also starts to, you know, bring those sort of the broader problem, which is because these employees have been very used to being catered to, right, by their companies, it also now has sort of led to a much broader sort of push in terms of activism. Uh, some of it led, you know, especially over the summer with what happened there. But that's sort of the other really interesting point about this new move to unionization in this case for Google is that it is part of a broader trend, right? Part of this is increasing demands by employees at Google for policy overhauls on pay, harassment, mm-hmm. and ethics uh, that is basically going to escalate some of those tensions with, with top leadership. We've seen that already. The most recent example of that, one that we talked about, sure. um, you know, a few episodes back, which is with Timna Gebru, uh, which is a black woman who is a respected artificial intelligence researcher who in December mentioned that uh, Google had fired her after she criticized the company's approach to minority hiring 
and the biases built into AI systems. Now, since then, we talked about it the last time, there's been a lot of uh, sort of fallout from, from, from that effort. And, and what she was, basically Google's position at the time was that she had resigned and her position is yeah. she had been fired. And you know, when we talked about it, then we, we both agreed like, look, it could have handled a lot better. And at the end of the day, Google is not going to look good at the end of, the, of this thing. The other thing is that I've, in doing research for this episode, I also came across a number of other instances where people have claimed on all sides of the ideological spectrum that they had been either let go or had their wings clipped or something by Google for too much internal activism, right? Yeah. And that, that, um, that episode that we identified the last time with Gebru, the uh, AI researcher, had the had the to me it smelled of that yeah, like did. thorn in your side too much activism we're going to figure out a way to clip you and they they probably did because which which is super interesting right yeah. because on, on the one hand you know i would describe silicon valley as being very pro employee especially those high paying employees or high skilled employees because of all the benefits and all the sort of the flexibility that is there at the same time you sort of see this other side of that coin which to your point where, yeah, very pro-employee until you know they become a little active, until they start questioning the ethics of the company, until they start trying to rally things yeah. up. All of a sudden, like, oh, wait a minute, shut that down. All of a sudden, they sound way more like regular corporate in other places. So I think it's really interesting. Other things, by the way, in terms of Google that they've dealt with mm-hmm. is in 2018, more than 20,000 employees staged a walkout to protest how the company had handled sexual harassment. And then others had opposed business decisions that they deem unethical, such as the development of artificial intelligence for the defense department and providing technology to customs and border protection. So in cases, in these cases, you saw Google employee directly questioning the decisions of management on how the technology was going to be used, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting dynamic of the, the type of the fact that I think even these employees felt that they had a voice to actually express that sort of speaks to that there was a more balance in power or at least a more perceived balance in power where employees really felt that they could actually dictate what what Google should or shouldn't do. And I think getting sort of slapped down in these cases has now caused for them to figure out, well, maybe we actually need better protection as employees and then start looking at a place like, like unions to provide that kind of protection. What do you think that, I mean, my big question in going through all of this material was, it was a little bit unclear to me or a bit blurry what it is that this union wanted and who they actually were representing, right? So like specifically what the goals were. As near as I could find, this um, Alphabet Workers Union was was using was looking to use um, all tactics available to them to pressure Google into changing its policies um, and use pressure campaigns to basically influence right what they called quote to protect people who we think are being discriminated against or yeah. retaliated against and I mean that on the surface it sounds like one of those things that's so non controversial like who would disagree with that but then what exactly is the the like how does a union do that differently than other kind of people ops and HR groups and different things like that. If there's not like a collective bargaining thing, if you're not going to be, um, you know, trying to to uh, to demand or or, right. or request, you know, policy changes well, or things like yeah, that. Yeah. So I guess my first question is, what is it exactly discreetly that you're looking to do? Who are you do- looking to do it for? And why does it require an entirely new organization to do it? Those are my three main questions on this. Before yeah. we even get into the philosophical issues sure, of unions, sure, sure. which and, I'm not a fan of, generally speaking. Um, uh, at least according to this New York Times article that we were uh, researching to, mm-hmm. for, for, the, for this topic, you know, it said that the workers uh, that were involved in this, uh, in this alphabet workers union said that primarily they saw it as an effort to give structure and longevity to activism at Google. So I think a lot of it has to do with them feeling supported to be able to raise issues and having more power than at least what they felt they had in the past. 
as it relates to many of these issues, whether maybe diversity, you know, sexual harassment, right. the, the type of topics that. So it's almost like formalizing a sounding board is what it sounds I like. I think part of it is that I, if I want to read between the lines, what I think uh, this does is the fact that it's because it's a sort of in between <clears throat> step to a full on union, which I'm sure Google does not want. Mm-hmm. The threat of even having some version of a union, even if it's considered a minority union of 400 only of the what are 260,000 employees, I think it starts to move Google in that direction that unless they get sure. their act together and better address the points that these employees are bringing up, right? Even to the 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 the, the call out that happened with uh, with with Gimru was 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 let go or whatever she walked out of the of the building, you know now they're in real danger of the rest of their staff saying, well, wait a minute. Maybe we should be fully unionized. Maybe we should be having the type of bargaining agreements that you see in other industries. And if that happens, then they're real, real trouble. So I think the the mm. creation of it as alone is a bigger enough threat to put that kind of external pressure to be able to create more 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 lasting change. And frankly, for them to be not to just be ignored or pushed aside, which it sounds there was some elements of that even when we talked about it the last time. And I would I, I guess I buy the idea of formalizing a sounding board. Because, especially in the case of Google, from what I understand over the last several years, they've actually started to, they wouldn't, I'm sure, classify it as remove the transparency. But they have definitely moved away from the, like, every Friday, all hands, where you can ask the people any question you want, and you can get them on the spot, and kind of, you know, they've moved away from all that. They've made it like, if you know, if you get enough upvotes to your question, we'll ask that one. Like, it's become much more kind of bureaucratic. So in that world where you are getting your ability to voice your concerns, maybe curtailed, maybe it does make sense to kind of formalize a structure that allows you to, you know, you didn't yeah. like my word agitate earlier, but it's kind of what it is. It's agitate for change or demand change or request change politely. But, but so I get that part, like mm-hmm. that part I understand. The question of who, who is it for? I have questions about because, you know, I think about their, the stated, at least as I could find the goal, the stated goal this one, um, the vice chair, I guess, last name was Shaw. I forget his first name, mm-hmm. but he, he's the one who said, we're going to use every- Chewy Shaw is Chewy name. Shaw, thank you. We're going to use every tool that we can to use our collective action to protect people who think who we think are being discriminated against or retaliated against. That sounds like a super noble, worthwhile goal. And I wonder, though, would that apply to James Damore or Kevin Cernicky, guys who were engineers at Google- that got fired or resigned or whatever, and who subsequently sued or had complaints mm-hmm. about being marginalized for conservative points of view. Like, yeah. does it apply to them? Like, that's a, that's a just a straight up question. That's a, yeah, I, I I would assume so. I mean, yeah, and I think it's 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 kind of it's interesting, right? Because the the problem I think Google is, is starting to face here is once you start getting from both sides, it's a problem, a massive problem, right? Because on the one hand, not that I'm saying it's okay, but if you could literally just constrained to the issue being with well there's only those voices that feel that they're not well represented enough in this case we're saying more conservative voices that look based on being in silicon valley based on being in california you're gonna say they're probably a smaller percentage of the employees that are that are there you could sort of to some extent push those to the side but the problem that now google has is, is they're getting on both ends both the liberal more leaning side sure. of, the, of the organization which is going to be a much larger share of the employees that are there and to you know to the examples you just brought up, all the right side leaning all feel that they're not being well heard, represented, etc. You have a pretty big problem if that's the case. And by the way, and that's think, a mirror image of what's going on on the consumer side of the equation too with these platforms. I mean, the both sides it, it are pissed is, off. Yeah, and I think I think all of those things are related. What I find probably most interesting is what I what I think of the the sort of the the company journey, right? The structure journey that happens 
as you look at some of these startups that tend to usually start as very kumbaya. Oh, yeah. 100% transparency. Culture, culture, culture. All about culture. And then you get to a point where now you have a pretty decent size organization and you get that moment of like where you have to like sort of recheck people like, no, 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 you're actually an employee. No, we have people that make the decision. That's not your call. And it's like that big sort of uh, the point. Look, I haven't, I've never worked at Google, so I can't speak to what, what they've gone through. But we've but worked I have, with Google. We've worked with Google. And I've also worked in organizations that are, there are different stages of that transition. Mm-hmm. I remember having, as a matter of fact, I wasn't there, but a company that I was, I was involved with, I remember talking to the previous CEO. And he told me that, you know, in conversation, they, you know, they would have this like open Q&A for every Friday kind of sure. thing, right? Very, very typical. He said, look, then he started getting like, these, like really like questions that just were not appropriate, like all the time. And he had like literally just stop. Things like, well, how much do money do you make? And why do you make that much more than we do? And, 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 and all of a sudden he was like, whoa, <laughs> time yeah, out. Pump the brakes, baby. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we, we got to like, you know, pull this back. So I do find it a little bit hilarious. I well, I mean, why, you've but, got... But you, there, there's some element of that, right? Of the company kind of growing up and, and sure. it's much more of a corporation than it is a, a startup. When you've, when it hasn't been a startup for a very long time. Hasn't for a long time. You've got more than a quarter million employees and contractors. I mean, yeah. it's 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 almost like a small government at some point, less than it, than it is a company. And you have to sort of, at some point, with, when you're talking about numbers that big, institute these right. sort of not friendly to the just kind of creative stream of consciousness yeah, perspective. But I, but I guess going back to a, a brief comment that you made in talking about this, you, yeah. you, you mentioned just not being for union. Like, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, why do you, A, why do you feel that way? Sure. How do you feel that was sort of applicable in this case for a company like this? It, it doesn't seem as applicable because, I, again, my, my image of union is unions are mostly about worker protections related to pay, uh, standards of, you know, how they actually do their work. Um, you know, the kind of collective bargaining where people are, um, you know, obviously they don't have the same one-to-one uh, referent power to have a conversation with their management. So they have to get together in a group to be able to f- uh, force force change. So it's different in that sense that it seems like the desire of this organization is more about the kind of ethical things that they want to sure. aspire to. And, the, and it's not necessarily about those fundamental things. The reason I'm not philosophically a fan of of unions is, I mean, on one side, I like the idea of people being able to band together and share their concerns, especially if their concerns are uniform about whatever the issues are, and go to their management and request that change. No problem with that. But the experience that I have, I've had in my in my time with unions are like the kind of unions like the electricians unions or or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I've, all the names of like the worker types of unions where you're not able to actually do something unless you have the proper person there. You know, the right. bureaucracy that, and the red you, tape that you goes see along union with it. And, and sort of inefficiency. That's, that's how I equate it. So yeah. I, I see it as yeah. I see it as a conflict to innovation is kind of what I see. Well, a- at least yeah. in the traditional sense. That's my that's my philosophical beef. Now, I'm not saying in, pra- in practice I can get behind it, depending on right. what it means. But my philosophical point of view is that. If I see a thing that we can pick up off the ground because it's there, but I can't because I'm not the right union guy, right? And then we have to leave it or walk around it. To me, that's uh, the example of inefficiency that doesn't work in the private sector the way that it should. Yeah, so I, I could definitely understand that point of view, right? I mean, look, I think in in many ways, you know, when I think about unions, um, it, my probably my best example was that when I first started uh, at Univision, right? Um, I would, you know, I was traveling a lot with the president of the radio division and we would go to all the different markets and, and sort of have a lot of strategy sessions. I remember my first year, within the first few months, we started going to, I guess it wasn't my first year. It was, it was, it was maybe after the first few years, 
we were uh, going to Puerto Rico. Now, Puerto Rico, as a you know, as a as a place, as a as a territory, it tends to be very unionized, right? Like constantly. So there was, I remember actually, as a matter of fact, even before I started with the company, there was always like some kind of union negotiation going on. One particular year they were there, and actually, wasn't I wasn't I was no longer working with radio. I remember I was working with a television group. We showed up, and then. Frankly, there was like a protest that was organized, knowing that I was coming in with the president of the television group. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. A protest. A protest, right? Because it was in the middle of, of negotiations with the union. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So yeah. we showed up early, got to the station. It was like during business planning, right? So we got to the station. We're working through the business plan, and then we hear that there's some big protest outside of the of the station. And apparently, they got <laughs> they were they were their plan was to protest and to not let us into the building. As a way of protest, right? The but union sh- people. The union people. But they showed up too late. Like we already had. You're already in. We already in. Like they didn't. I don't know. They didn't start it early enough. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe after breakfast. But it, was, it is Puerto Rico island time. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it, we thought it was pretty hilarious. But but you know, I remember hearing and and, and having this conversation with with some of the general managers. I remember someone telling me this. I'm like, look, like I can understand why people have this sort of bad taste in their mouth as it relates to unions because there is a certain level of bureaucracy. To you mentioned inefficiency. He said, but the, to him, it was like the way he, he he described it. Like, but to me, it's like once you agree to what the work is going to be, like then you're just off to the races. Like it's fine, and I agree with the level of that, and I understand the the the, the idea of protecting um, employees, especially those that don't really have a point to negotiate from. The the challenge with agreeing on what you're going to work on is also it, agreeing on everything else you're not going to work on, and that's a, I think that's part a of what you're too. talking about because it creates well, this dynamic where it's like. Mm-hmm. That's not my job. That's exactly what I mean. Job. And, and even agreeing to the work that's going to be done, how does that work in 2021 in well, a world like the one we live in where initiatives and job descriptions and organizations can go from A to Z in the course of a quarter? And I think that's what, for me, is one of the biggest questions with this, which you, guys, which you touched on already, which is as it relates to the tech industry where innovation is such a critical part of the dynamic how does unions, at least in the traditional form that they've had, uh, operate in that kind of environment, right? Now, here what we're talking is a little bit different, right? Maybe maybe this is the new version of what this looks like, right. which is not about, uh, you know, as, as focus on the, the working environment, on what the role from, roles they're going to have and responsibilities on the pay, but more about positions that the employees feel very strongly about that they individually don't feel like they have the leverage to be able to negotiate or push on hard enough with, with these companies. And that's kind of an interesting dynamic. I mean, to me, like, I, I, I'm curious to see how much of this becomes a bigger problem or bigger, not problem, a bigger thing at Google and how much of that starts to now sort of go into the rest of, of Silicon Valley and yeah. start impacting everybody else. I think it has major implications. But even, even before getting out of Google, there's a lot of issues at Google. Think about it. Number one is you have to pay dues for this union just like any other one. Yeah, the, you it's, have to, it's a 1%, 1% of your total yeah. income, right? And so, and they've got 400 and some odd whatever members, but I presume their goal is to add members to that. Sure. And what happens, again, going back to my question about who you're representing, what happens if the answer to the question of James Damore, this other guy who got fired for what they claimed were a conservative bias, what happens if they're really not representing them? And these guys decide they don't want to pay their union dues because their union doesn't have their perspective in mind. Sure. Does that not just create more? Do we not have to have a second minority union to deal with these other issues? Like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, there's possibly, a- but I, gotta, I mean, that has to be a dynamic that happens everywhere. I mean, in, in all kinds of yeah. unions, I'm sure you have the same issue all the time where you're going to have certain unions that just don't represent 
don't fully represent all the interests of, of every one of the employees. And I think it's about trying to find the things that they mo- that are most common amongst every. But all what them. happens if people don't leave the unions and they don't pay their union dues and they're they're called scabs? There's like a whole you know sure. yeah. subculture. Sure, sure, uh, right. I mean, it's yeah. it, it, it brings up a lot of interesting. But but I think that's the that's the case in all in all cases. I, I don't know if that if I don't know if anything unique about that situation you described here. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's interesting to have a sounding board as it relates to ethical issues that people have not even necessarily thought of. Like we're they're developing technology that we may not understand the ethical implications of. Sure. So if you don't have a body that basically asks those kind of questions and does it on behalf of the body of employees. Like that means that you can leave management up to do just what's expedient or whatever it may be. But again, you're operating this, even that question, even that thought process is one where you're really thinking of this thing more as a government than a company. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. So I, and I do think that's part of the challenge that you have here and maybe part of the opportunity of having these kind of organizations, because some of the issues that they are dealing with, some of the technology to your point that they are developing have so many implications that you really need to have that, almost a little bit of yin and yang to be able to push on and make sure that there's actually some more for, more thought being put into into, into its usage. Um, I think the part that I find really interesting is just a broader move towards more social uh, activism. Activism. Um, yeah. And the role that that's going to play in the future of these companies. And this is maybe one of the best, best meaning like, like most formalized version of how this is now shaping the future of these companies, and I, I find it I find it super interesting. I don't think that that you can unring the bell. I think there's going to be more of this. That. Yeah, I think that this union will probably grow in prominence. It may spin off into other you know unions. They'll probably gain more power. And I do think that Google's in a position to to your earlier point where like they have to. They've already lost the kind of "don't do evil" mantra, right? But they're gonna they need to basically recodify their culture in a way because they're living in a little bit of a half pregnant state. And I think that's also causing a well, lot of the, they're getting the, the, this hit mix up from all, every all, angle, every angle. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, being you know called a monopoly and, and just a, a bunch of issues, you know, the, the, the pressure that are getting, the social pressure they're getting is both from consumers and from employees. Mm-hmm. Right. So it is going to be interesting. Look, I think that we're going to be talking about Google quite a bit, I think for, for the rest of the year on a number of different issues. This specific topic, to your point, is going to be really curious to see if this is that that, that initial light that sort of lights the, the fire to some extent around these other, other organizations. Um, because if if Alphabet can't figure it out or how to how to you know address it, I think it'd be much harder for the, the other companies. If I was CEO of Google, a job I do not aspire to. Um, I, I can only imagine what that what uh, Sundar Pichai must uh, what his sleeping hours must be. But um, you know, I would want to see the platform that this union you know, represents, kind of understand that. To me, it's very unclear what that is. I'm not opposed to a, I'm not opposed to it given their stated objectives to the, ex, to the extent I could find stated objectives, but it's just very unclear. And I do think that there's pretty significant implications to Google and to the industry for, for this kind of thing, particularly in the area of, you know, what we talked about earlier, right? More bureaucracy, kind of right. like division or some cultural upheaval. So you got to be very, very clear and understand the platform, be able to, to like deal with it um, within Google and outside of Google. Yeah, but I think in terms of the approach is, A, you can't ignore them. And I think if you if you want to have this go away in any way whatsoever, then you have to aggressively try to address the concerns of your employees that are not yet on board with with, with this union. Because you're still totally talking about 400 employees yeah. that, are, that are part of this union. But if you don't address the bigger issues that everyone else does agree with, because even in the article they were talking about it, some folks were not on board with, with being part of this union. And in part because they felt that 
their previous efforts of protests are being dismissed by remember because this is sort of associated with that broader communication workers of america union right. right so there's this internal some some misalignment in terms of what they want to be involved with this but i think for if you're google like you have to proactively address the broader concerns that your employee base is having i think you have to find a way especially in this case with tim you know gabriel to address that somehow I don't know if bringing her back is even an option. Anymore. That definitely lit a wick. There's no question. Yeah. yeah. So there, there is some, some, some fires that they have to put out first. Um, I just wonder if there's anything that ultimately they can do to avoid any some variation of this at all times. In other words, they've yeah. gotten so big, they're so you know just full of money, yeah, and, not, yeah. and it's just like at some point, even if they capitulate or if they set up programs. It's just they're an easy target. When companies get this big and they start sure. getting that reputation, there's going to be people trying to hit them from all sides, I and that's that. just yeah. that's just a challenge that they that they actually have. But it, you know, interesting story. Um, we'll see kind of where it goes. We'll track it. But uh, Google is going to be a, a you know a big topic of our conversations for uh, for 2021 and beyond. Should we uh, move to courage or cringe? Let's do it. All right, very cool. First courage or cringe of the season. A wide variety of items here, kind of all over the place. Let's start with the guy with the most colorful name in uh, in sports uh, sports broadcasting, Booger McFarland. Uh, yeah. So first the background, right? So recently the Washington football team, remember, this is one of the topics that we sort of touched about before. That's right. Previously known as the Redskins, uh, released Dwayne Haskins, um, which was a pretty shocking decision considering that it used a first round draft pick on the Ohio state quarterback just last year. Right. So only a year in the league, first round draft pick, you know, those are expensive picks to be, sure. to be putting out. And is already a bust and has been released, which is, you know, that's that's not common. That's, that's well, a he big, also, big deal. He also has some context, right? He also broke uh, COVID protocol. He ended up going to a strip club. He had, in the he did he like had issues pretty on much the field, all the stuff he off could, the field. Yeah. This is like the guy. This was not his, like just he didn't perform. So we're not really yeah. here to talk about him getting released. I think he got released for a number of reasons, a number of which sound pretty good reasons. But the reason why this falls on the courage or cringe is more about the actual conversation around his release, right? So... I made a roundtable discussion about, you know, Dwayne Haskins uh, on Monday Night Countdown, which is a show before Monday Night Football. Booger McFarlane, which once again, love the, the name, mm-hmm. uh, who's both a commentator and an ex-NFL player. And by the way, at 6'1", 300 pounds, you're not going to tell him his name no. is funny sounding. You're going to say that, Mr. Booger? <laughs> Mr. Booger. Uh, exactly, right? Former defensive end, too, Former for, defense, for the Buccaneers. For yeah. the Buccaneers, that's mm-hmm. right. Uh, so he delivered a pretty questionable take uh, on the quarterback bus, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I quote, he mentioned oftentimes a young players, especially I'm going to go ahead, especially young African-American players, because they make up 70 percent of this league. They come into this league and ask themselves the wrong thing. Mm. They come into the league saying not how can I be a better player? They don't say how can I be a better teammate? They don't uh, say how can I be a better person? How can I get my organization over the hump? Here's what they come in saying. They come in saying, how can I build my brand better? How can I build my social media following better? How can I work on Instagram and show everybody that I'm ready to go? But when I get to the game, I don't perform. You know, Dwayne Haskins, unfortunately, is not the first case that I've seen like this. Right. And he goes on to compare it to other other folks. And it won't be the last. And it bothers me because a lot of it is the young African-American players. They come in. They don't like it. They don't take it as a business. It's still a game to them. I saw a quarterback do it. I saw Jamarcus Russell do it, which, by the way, Famously was a massive bust. Uh, who was the number one draft pick? Uh, they gave him forty million, and he threw it down the damn drain because they didn't. He didn't take it seriously. So he was the number one draft pick for the Raiders, uh, coming out of um, LSU. I think is what it was, right? Yeah. So 
basically he kind of puts this whole thing on on him not just on him but really as representative of african-american players in general and specifically yeah. of course quarterbacks now i think the part where many people sort of had issue with this immediately and i'll let you of course respond to this is that what he doesn't actually talk about is many of the now white player especially quarterbacks who had a similar kind of bust maybe not as quick as a year into their, johnny manziel johnny manziel's probably the, the first one that will pop up which is one of the more recent ones uh ryan leaf was a ryan pretty leaf. famous one from you know back, back in, the, in day. the day paxton lynch jake locker no there's a number of other quarterback busts who basically had similar outcomes maybe not as quickly as as, as this case but you know, to put it all as African American players, I yeah. think is, is what really raised a lot of red flags. So, what was your take when you when you oh, saw this commentary? I knew you were going to ask me that. But there was a bunch of things here, right? There's the whole comment around putting around African American players. That's sort of point one. Point two is, is this whole notion about mm-hmm. whether these players, when they come in, should be thinking about building their brand or being better or, or focusing on play first and foremost. And there's a lot of debate there as well. So, whichever one you want to take there's on. There's such a confluence of things, though, in his statements. Some of which I think undermine what he was trying to say. I agree with that and, already. And yeah. let, me, let, me, let me break it down, a few of them. Number one is he made a comment at the beginning about, he says, I'm, I'm going to go there about the African-American players. And then he said, he qualifies it. He goes, because they're 70% of the league. So it seemed at that moment that he was beginning to appeal to the fact that I want to address something that is the case because this is the majority of the people. Like, And so I started listening from that standpoint. Right. But then he made other points that kind of, took him away from this majority kind right. of stance. Then he right? kind of brought it back in. And he kind of brought it back in. The yeah, other thing yeah, yeah. that was a bit of a was a bit of a, a confluence was when he said they don't take it seriously, these these uh, black players in particular, but I don't know if at that point he was talking only of black players. He was saying specifically the black players, but that they don't take it seriously. They don't treat it like a business. And then he goes on and gives an example of what they do treat it as. Let's work on my brand, let's work on whatever. Well, that is part of the business, right? So I think right. what he was trying to say is maybe they don't take the athletic part seriously, but he kept saying business, this is a business, this is a business. I think coming in and talking about my brand, my uh, the value of my franchise, longevity, my endorsements, what investments can I make, that is part of the business. Now, I think you might business, not like it. Yeah, by business, I think he he meant specifically the business of the team. Right. Right. As it relates to the team. Right. Which right. is separate than your personal right. brand, your personal business and anything you do outside of the field. Right. And for the record, in case somebody's listening and just not a football fan or follows any Monday Night Football, Booger McFarlane is black. Right. So just to be to be to be clear. Right. Um, and, and so that gives you a little bit of color to his the context. I mean, of with his, that name, you, you statements. couldn't know what, the, what he was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but um, and I don't even know where the nickname came from. But anyway, my point was there's 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 a confluence of different things where it made me it made it hard for me to try to understand what point he was making and it was only at the very end when he started talking more about this like he got a little bit animated you know talking about some of the previous busts and that they come in and they flush their stuff down the drain and blah that it, that it was clear to me at least the way I think that he was making a point that there was a cultural thing to mm-hmm. me it's what it sounded like right. that people come in and they're more worried about how much money and how much fame and how much prosperity and how much whatever rather than can I be a really solid athlete? And on that side, I agree with him because I happen, my boys both play uh, football and they play, even though they are not D1 prospects in high school, they play with people who are D1 prospects. And I have plenty of experience with D1 uh, bound 
athletes in high school, not so much in college, but in high school and their families. And there is a not insignificant contingent that very much even from an early age is definitely talking about like endorsements and shoe deals and content and social. And this is a means to get to that, right? So that is something. Now we can debate whether or not that's right or wrong. To say it doesn't exist to me is is just not according with reality. Whether or not it's a majority of players, I don't know. Right. Um, and, and it does not just impact black players. It, it impacts a lot of players in general. But it is something that I've seen that does exist among people, uh, you know, in the football world. It just does this mm-hmm. this idea sure. of being focused on that. So ultimately, it was hard for me. I think all in all, I fell on courage on this one, and the reason for that was just simply because he was stating a truth that was that is unpopular to say. He did it inelegantly, and he did it in a way that talked about a variety of things. In some cases, undermining his argument. But the core issue about people come into this league and they're more focused on brands and endorsements and things like that and more and less about playing the game and laying some of that responsibility on the majority of the players who happen to be black is a tough thing to say. And I think for that, I, I ultimately came down on courage, although it was by a slim margin. You? I'm the complete opposite. So okay. this is total, total cringe. And the reason for that is this reminds me of what, unfortunately, many... Um, diverse people have to deal with is that their individual actions many times are taken as a reflection to their their entire race ethnicity group that is that is associated and it's i think this is really really unfair right mm-hmm. now the, the the fact that you have you know a lot of players into to his argument that he thinks that focus more on their individual brand versus a play that sure i don't disagree with that by the way i think the whole industry has shifted in that direction because now we're talking about players who have social brands as, you know, high school, even before that. Sure. Right. So that's already a much bigger trend that's across all players who play, regardless of race. Right. Look at so, Zion. Zion's Instagram handle was bigger than for sure. Jordan, I think, when he was in high school. Yeah, you have some of the, yeah, and a lot of these or kids. Or LeBron. Exactly. These are all people that are working on their personal brand. Now, they happen to be good and play really well, and it doesn't seem to affect their actual play, so therefore no one has a problem with it. But that's a sort of a separate issue. Mm. I mean, to me, pinning this directly on African-American players. Only do you think that's it, what it, he was doing, though? Or do you think he just misspoke? I think if he only said it once, I would say he wasn't. But the fact that he kind of came back and doubled down on it again, but it, but just on, that's, but that's just, the part where I had an issue with it. But right? just on raw numbers, if you're talking about 70% of the pool of people happen to be African-American, aren't you, by extension, if you say... Af- like this group talking 70% about African-Americans? No, because then you're saying that the other 30% that are not are not doing this. And that's just not the case. That's just not true. If you think about a lot of the other players that we talked about, John, Johnny Menzel, who's the guy loved to party, personal, for sure. massive personal brand. Sure. He's not black. He was doing it as well. We have a lot of these other players that are also doing this. But, but So, mm-hmm. so th- ahead, just because the, the, the proportion of players is majority African-American, the way that he's framing it, it makes it sound like it's only that group of players who have this problem that basically prioritize personal brand higher than their actual professional yeah. performance. And that's what I have issue I with. Got, I hear that 100%. I just, that's, right. that's where I think you and I are, are, are not seeing the same thing because what I saw was him say, especially for the African-American players, because they're the majority. And if you're seven out of 10 people, then it's going to apply at a greater degree because there's just more of them. So I, I don't think he was saying only. I think he was saying especially them. And that's where maybe I just see yeah. it differently. But but the, to me, when I hear that especially is providing a special focus on African-American players as having a bigger problem with it, 
as opposed right. to... Right, but not, that's not my, related to the fact that they're 70% is what co- you're saying. Correct, right? See, that's so, how I read it. I read it because yeah, it's their 70%. Well, because he, he says that, but then he goes back and brings it again about being African-American players, right? So that's what I, I, I think, look, that's my issue that I... That's the biggest issue that I have with, with, with his comments, mm-hmm. right? I'm in no way justifying this this kid that burned out so quickly and that obviously prioritized a lot of things in Over front of his, his actual performance, right? But this notion that that players shouldn't build, I guess the bigger the other question of this conversation is like, should players try to build their own personal brand while trying to make it in the league? I have a hard time making an argument to a player that is, by the way, plays in the NFL, which is, you know, most people say is not for long, that right. may be playing for three, four years, right? And has to figure out a way to make the majority of their money that they're probably ever going to make in those three or four years. Mm-hmm. And if they don't set themselves up correctly, they may end up being broke. They may end up even finish college, sure. right? They have a bunch of, of issues that are there. Could have a bunch of medical problems after playing. Not to try to find a way to build personal brand or to plant seeds that they can later on be able to, you know, uh, you know, develop from from there and create create opportunity. So I have a hard time making an argument. I understand his point that if you do that at the expense of actually playing, then you're doing yourself. A disservice. A disservice because yeah. you're not going to get playing time. You're going to get bounced from the league right away. And then all this work that you're trying to do to leverage that moment in time where you have the most popularity is going to is gonna go away. But so I, I, mm-hmm. I get that point. So yeah. if it was about that, I understand. But I, I did have – the reason why I come hard on cringe is that I really don't like the way they laid it on black players. And really, frankly, what it, what it reminded me of is what I was saying, which is this notion that if – you know, when Johnny Manziel came, came out and said, you know, these white quarterbacks, you can't trust them. Mm-hmm. You know, these white quarterbacks from the Big Ten you know, leagues, you cannot trust those guys because mm-hmm. they're not going to deliver. Like, wait, wait, what? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Because Johnny Manziel is that, right? right? Or, yeah, these Heisman Trophy winners, you can't trust those guys because all they, they're all busts. So well, what do you okay? Either. So what do you think? So it's a cringe, but just I'm just curious. What do you think the motivation is? Because some people, I'm sure, if they haven't already, will eventually call Booger McFarland a racist, even though he's black. <sighs> Yeah, but I don't think it needs to be called a racist. I just think that, I mean, I, I feel that in this case, maybe he feels because he himself is black that he's in a special position to be able to call out his own. Mm-hmm. And it's his way, to your point, like, you know, people that are, you know, they're older older players that are maybe have a little bit out, outdated way of thinking because in his way of thinking, I could see it already, which is you, you come in, you shut up, you work hard, you earn your spot, you do that first. And after you're done with all of that, then maybe you look at it, look at doing something else. Okay. That makes sense when you were, you know, playing in the in the late nineties when there was no social media, where everything was about like, just your performance on, on Sundays or Thursdays, whatever the you know, I don't know mm-hmm. if it was Thursdays after like that makes sense at that time. It doesn't quite make sense now. Because many, many times the reason why some of these guys are getting the contracts they're getting is because they already have the kind of following, that kind of brand to your comment about Zion and even like like, like the Lavar um the Ball brothers and all yeah. those guys, right? They're at the other extreme, but they somehow figured it out to be able to leverage that pretty well and give them quite a bit of success. Now, it happens that two out of three players can actually play, or two, two out of three brothers can actually play. One is not very good. Um, but but I but I, that's why I have a hard time. I, I can understand that argument. I just did not like him laying it that way. Okay, fair uh, enough. With African-American players. Fair enough. Okay, so we're... Uh we're immediately we immediately start off 2021 with complete disagreement. Complete disagreement. All, All right. right. So now we're moving far afield from the gridiron over to uh, maybe a place who could benefit from playing a, a, a game of Smash Mouth football, uh, Silicon Valley. And uh, the folks over at Coinbase got themselves into some trouble. What's that about? Yeah. So also from the um, in New York Times. So in data recently obtained by, by New York Times, it indicated that women at Coinbase were paid an average of 13000 or 8% less than men. 
at comparable jobs and ranks within the company, right? So according to their analysis and figures, which included pay details for most Coinbase, roughly 830 employees from the end of 2018. Now, what gets even worse when we look at it by different levels of, 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 of roles, at certain manager levels, women were paid even tw- like as much as 20% less than, than the men in the, in the organization. Um, the picture was also unequal for the 16 salary black employees in, in the data. By the way, hard pause on that on that comment. You have 16 black employees out of 830. It's three percent, which is yeah. And, 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 and I was and like, I don't even care how much they're underpaid. To some right. extent, like you have <laughs> right. 16 employees that are black. Like, right, guys, we can and do it, better. And it's we stayed, can do better. It's been that way for like three or four years, apparently. And they were paid, yeah. and for them, they were paid 11,500 or seven percent less than all other employees in similar jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Irrespective of gender, in that case, with the black. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah. So f- there's no gender issue there. Just <laughs> right, right. Uh, and you know, some of the other history there. Numerous black employees at Coinbase have recently publicly complained about discrimination they face at the company, and then also several women at, who work at Coinbase had also complained internally about how they were hired, paid, and promoted according to the company documents, and and five employees with knowledge of the complaints. What was interesting in looking at this is that. There was some data they shared what could actually compared some of that pay disparity at Coinbase and that it was actually worse than the tech industry overall because as we've covered in, in, in this in this podcast before is that Silicon Valley in general uh, has a problem as it relates to diversity representation and also like having you know uh, equal pay for, for some of these folks right so when you look at roles that were adjusted adjusted for for comparable jobs at Coinbase they were minus eight percent. Uh, in terms of their disparity in paying women versus Google at minus 0.4 and industry average is minus 0.1. So it's below, but, you know, fairly a parity. Mm-hmm. When it's not adjusted for comparable jobs, Coinbase was at minus 18 versus minus 14 for Google and minus 15 for industry average. And the reason you see such a big difference is just that in certain roles, there's just very little, you know, representation of women, especially for the higher paying, higher paying roles. Mm-hmm. Um. And look, the, the their CEO responded, their 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 head of people operation responded, and all the things that they've done. But when you when you actually look at the actual internal figures, right, it looks like the diversity, uh, the company's diversity has not really changed since 2018. In late 2019, the percentage of female and black employees was 33 percent for female and then three percent for black employees, mm-hmm. which was about the same as as it was in 2018. So this is a case, you know, in how we started the podcast where. Like if diversity is in any way important, and for many of these companies, including this one, who you know cl- claims to make a, a number of changes in terms of some of their programs, how they look at compensation, et cetera, it sure does. It certainly doesn't look reflective from the actual data itself. Yeah, I think doing. I think you know to to be a bit cynical, I think the the idea of diversity is a, kind of a means to an end and a little bit of a PR thing for a lot of these companies. I'm not saying that they don't have some intent to do better, but I think that they look at it principally for the messaging value that it brings or that it takes away. And I think until we get rid of that and have folks start actually looking at the value and benefit of bringing a variety of different folks with different experiences into these organizations, nothing's going to happen because they're they're kind of wrapped up in the messaging of what this is or isn't. That to me is like the biggest problem here. Now, in their defense, and just to kind of start with the end in mind, this is a cringe for me, but just to, just in their defense, the um, the numbers that you just cited, which compared their stats to Google and Oracle, in the Google and Oracle cases, those numbers actually controlled for things like experience and education, and in the Coinbase one, we don't have those stats, right? right. So yeah, it, could be, it could be possible that you could be, let's call it manager one, 
level one in one organization and manager level one at Coinbase, but manager level one at the other organization, you've yeah. got a four-year degree and in the other one you don't. And that's why you're getting paid a little bit more money. So let's kind of, you know, let's, let's be clear about that because there could be some, some additional uh, uh, disparity. But, mm-hmm. but overall, I think that the history or the kind of pattern of things that, have, that has happened here um, coupled with one interesting stat that frankly was like, to me, when I read it, I was like, okay, this is reason alone for this thing to be a cringe were, was what the deciding factor was for me. So, so their past history, mm-hmm. the stats that are shown here, the discrepancy between the industry, even though I'm taking into account that they're not necessarily apples to apples and this last fact, and that is a quote from the article that said that more than 5% of the company, 60 some on employees quit literally months ago, this fall, literally months ago, after the CEO put a place in place a policy that restricted employees from discussing politics and social issues at work. <laughs> like literally said you can't have those conversations. Right. 5% of the company quit. Yeah. To me, that's enough of a reason to give this. I mean, it's a different subject, but it kind of shows you a little bit about what the kind of culture might be like internally that you're trying it's, to kind of govern and mandate that, super that level right? of communication. Because when you think about this story relative to what we were just talking about, which is Google, and then the move to start unionizing, you can see how a lot of these companies are going to get, like not, right now, yeah. it's just sort of getting called out at, by individuals and some of this data getting leaked, but you're going to start seeing probably a move to much more unionization. In this case, even, even looking at pay potentially, right? And if you're a CEO and you're making that kind of policy announcement, like, what are you thinking? Like, first of all, know that you're running a tech startup where even if you personally feel that way, fine, but you're just not operating that kind of environment with people that are highly skilled, highly mobile in terms of, of, of different kinds of, you know, being able to work for different kinds of companies. I mean, it's just, it, it's a, at some point, I think these kind of things has to go to board level, especially mm-hmm. for companies like this one who are trying to go public. I think they're trying to go public, if I remember correctly. Um, what percentage of the population do you think knows what the hell Coinbase is or what they do? A very small percentage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think a very small percentage. But uh, but I think that's the, but I think that's the where this has you know starts to go into like boards getting involved, sure, and making some real you know addressing some of these real changes here because if you're looking at what's going on in Google, and you know you have this kind of issues and disparities in your in your company, like that's a that's a big problem. So I, I was with you. I, I was very cringe on this one for a whole set of reasons they have a one out of five uh, rating on Glassdoor, by the way for dni and it's yeah i mean and you're talking about once again they're they're going to be trying to as they grow they're going to try to bring more high skilled employees that have a lot of mobility in terms of where they can work um it's going to be a problem for them so i I think for their own sake they got to figure out a way to address some of these issues Mm -hmm. uh or he's going to come back and bite them in the butt Interesting. So you're a cringe. Yes. 500. We're batting 500. Yeah, we're, we're back right. at 500. All right. How do we, let's see how we round it out. This one, I, I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Brand new story. This is breaking literally as we were putting the show together today. Um, folks are going to hear this on the 6th, but we're recording the day before. And this story just broke about um, Kamala Harris. And well, you tell, you tell the background. Yeah. So, get into so it. Uh, Kamala Harris repeatedly told a freedom with a W, freedom story. Freedom that is now facing plagiarism accusations. So, look, there was an L interview that she did uh, that was published actually in October 2020. So the story, the root of the story is actually not new, right? So that was published in October 2020, uh, where Vice President-elect Kamala Harris uh, recalled accompanying her parents to marches as a toddler in a stroller. Uh, the, the Civil author, rights marches. Correct, yeah. yeah. So the author of the story, Ashley Ford, she wrote, Senator Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris uh, started her life's work young. She laughs from her gut, 
the way the, the way you would with family. And she remembers being wheeled through an Oakland through uh, an Oakland, California civil rights march in a stroller with no straps with her parents and, and her uncle. At some point, she fell from the stroller, and the adults uh, and the adults caught up in the rapture approach and just kept on marching. By the time they noticed little Kamala was gone and doubled back, she was understandably upset. Now, uh, Kamala re- recalled, my mother tells a story about how I'm fussing, and she's like, baby, what do you want? What do you need? And I just looked at her, and I said, freedom, right? So very cute story, mm-hmm. very nice when she says this, right? Now, by the way, this story or version of the story have been shared previously by the VP elect. And one in her 2010 book. Yeah, she published Smart, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she published it called Smart on Crime. And then again in her 2019 book called The Truth We Hold an American Journey. Right. So, however, the reason why this sort of came up now, and this is the, this is the breaking story part of it, is after that interview sort of resurfaced on, on Monday, there was some Twitter users um, and also Andre Domasi, which is the contributor editor for the Canadian publication McLean's, noted that Harris' story resembled one told by Dr. Martin Luther King in a 1965 interview published in Playboy. Um, now, according to that, to that article from Playboy. In 60, um, 1965 article. 1965, yeah, right. correct, right? Um, and for those of you, by the way, they may remember this, like in Playboy, actually, they did a lot of these kind they of interviews. They did like long form, journalistic, yeah. And they were very like pro-diversity, uh, bringing up some of these like real issues that were really happening at the time. I know they had, I think I want to say they have Malcolm X on one. They have Martin Luther King as well. I mean, it was really interesting because you don't necessarily associate that with Playboy. But uh, by the way, total aside. But that's why the old joke about Playboy was that guys would say, "Well, you know, I read it for the articles, right?" But there it, was, even there was in, the real articles, even, there, yeah. right? Even today, though, you hear that and it's like that makes absolutely no sense, even as a joke. But if you right. go back forty years, it would have been funny to say, "Well, there actually are good articles in there," there and there so are, maybe a, you are reading. There's it for a that. great um, like docu series. Mm-hmm. It's, it's docu scripted, kind of a combination, right? On um, on Hugh Hefner. Uh, for a play, I think it's called Playboy, an American icon or American entrepreneur. Mm. I want to say it's on, on what a, platform? I want to say it's Amazon Prime. I want to mm. say great, great documentary. It talks mm. about how he started the company, right, and and how he built it out, and some of the things that he did specifically to support a lot of the activism that was going on at the time. So they talk about some of these interviews they were doing and and highlighting uh, African American jazz players, even at the protests of many of the stations that were carrying some of the programming. It's really, it's really interesting. So for those of you who haven't seen it, I will say see it. Okay. Um, but anyway, going back to the, what the article said um, in that interview uh, that Dr. Keene uh, gave, he said, I will never forget a moment in Birmingham when a white policeman accosted a little Negro girl, seven or eight years old, who was walking in a demonstration with her mother. What do you want? The policeman uh, asked her gruffly. And the little girl looked at him straight in the eye and answered, feed him. Right. She couldn't even pronounce it, but she knew it was beautiful. Right. So when you hear that story versus the Kamala, uh, you know, story, uh, of course, there's a lot of similarities to it. Right. The little girl, you know, being sort of asked and in this case, you know, replaced the police officer by, by her mom. But the main sort of essence of the story feels very, very similar. So, of course, when this happened, you know, there was some immediate response slash rage. Right. On social <laughs> Um, slash rage. Well, you know, there was, right? <laughs> when is there not? Social, when is there not slash rage? There was a lot of, you know, response that we saw uh, primarily in, in some right-leaning media, of course. Well, that's um, who broke it, though. I that's mean, who to broke be clear, it. Yeah, we, yeah, just, yeah. we just literally, like, 20 minutes ago started seeing, like, more everybody pick it up. But it yeah. was broken by, by, by the right, by the conservative media. And there was, you know, also, of <clears> course, <throat> some quick comparisons to President-elect Biden's own plagiarism accusations from 1987, right? Mm-hmm. So... Then Senator Biden, who was running at the time for Democratic Party nomination, he gave a speech 
that was very close or bore resemblance to one delivered that same year by the head yeah. of the British Labour Party, Neil uh, Kinnock, who sure. And he got a lot of a lot of, a lot of flack for that. That um, one was a bit more was, clear. Yeah, cut. that was yeah, yeah, that was a big controversy at the time because it, it definitely felt very very similar. Um, now you know, then Senator Biden ended up dropping out of the the Democratic uh, Party nomination, and I, I, it was like one of the tragedies that happened to him. I forget what exactly it was. Yeah, the I think reason his, he dropped his uh, wife. Is that when his away. wife passed away? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he ended up dropping off, but nevertheless, there's uh, these you know comparisons, of course, being made there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then lastly came the memes. And oh, I love this. I saw the one memes. in your notes. It was it hysterical. Was hilarious. So there's, of course, like Braveheart memes, right? Where, you know, when he shouts the whole freedom, right? But it was with the, with the hashtag freedom with a W, which is hilarious. But the best one the that best I saw one. was the one from The Office. Now, there's a very famous scene in The Office where Michael Scott is talking and he has this behind the backboard that says, You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And then it has a small font, you know, Wayne Gretzky. And then a much bigger font, Michael Scott. And then they added an even like bigger font, Kamala Harris. And it has a picture of Kamala Harris. Like, that's great. I mean, just on the on the meme alone, I cannot stop laughing. So anyways, you got to be an I, office I, fan, but I enjoyed, it's hysterical. I enjoyed the story for, for that reason. But. All right. You want to go first? By the way, what are we what are we actually courage or cringing? The story or the accusation? What is it exactly? Probably the accusation, right? I guess it has to be the accusation. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, okay. I, I can. Yeah. I can do that. I can work with that. Um, do you want me to go first? Or you sure. Wanna... Cause I'm. I'm still. I'm. Uh, I'm literally still debating. So, okay. So, so, it may, so if I hear your take, um, it may change my mind. Okay. Um. All right. So the the accusation of her plagiarizing, um, based on what I understand right now and all the information that we've talked about, if I had to encourage or cringe that, I would say it's a cringe. Um. Here's why. I actually don't believe necessarily that this story actually happened in Kamala's uh, Kamala's youth, only because I find her extraordinarily inauthentic and very opportunistic. So I think that it's more likely that it's a conflation of things. So number one is I don't believe that it's happened exactly as she said, but that's beside the point. The the fact that something similar could have happened is much more likely than this is a straight up plagiaristic thing, right? Um, I, I do. I can believe. I can, you know, or or imagine her mom maybe reading that story of MLK or hearing about it or something, and then maybe ascribing it to her. I can also imagine her saying something similar and just, you know, being the case that she did say freedom at some point, and it just happened that you know, it seems she was younger. Right. The girl in the MLK case story was seven years old. Kamala is being strolled around in a baby stroller, so some of the things don't match, but. Right. But um, I, I think more likely than not, it was a conflation of of stories, mm. and um, but I don't. I think it's been innocently appropriated to her. I don't think it's a malicious thing. I do think she's used it for knock on effect wherever she's used for it because sure. it automatically <laughs> yeah, yeah. gets like a oh that's so amazing, that's so great. You've been yeah. a, such a freedom fighter from the very beginning, right? So um, so it's very expedient for her to use it. But nevertheless, the accusation of plagiarism on her part, where I don't un- I don't know of evidence of her being uh you know, any plagiarism allegations in her past, Biden for sure, yes, um, have been made before. So I think the sum of all of that is very flimsy evidence. Yeah. And so to me, the accusation seems like it's a bit of a, you know, a straw grasp and maybe a way to kind of just yeah, yeah. mess with her. You know what I mean? So 
So for me, I give it a cringe just on the on the on the evidence that I've found. Uh, yeah, and I was you know maybe giving a little bit more benefit of the doubt to these guys that were bringing it up, um, which is why I was debating about it a, a, a little bit more maybe than I typically would. But I'm I'm with you on also saying that it's cringe, and the reason I say that is that look, I actually I I'm agreeing with you as well. When I hear that story, I don't 100% believe that it happened exactly as she describes it. This feels to me like a, romantic, a romanticized version of something yeah. that happened. Yeah. Right? Like, the one thing that we do know is that the, her parents were activists. They were, I'm sure, in some of the marches. Do I believe that they took her to some of the marches? Yeah. Do I believe that maybe some of the cases, you know, something happened where she, you know, they lost her for a quick second? I could see that as well. Is it exactly how she describes it here? Probably not. Having said that, the fact that she's already said it multiple times, has it in multiple books, like this is this romanticized version or this version of a story, she, I think, believes it enough to actually yeah. be okay saying it over and over again. So It's become true. It's like a folk yeah, tale. Yeah, so kind of it's thing. like, uh, yeah. so I have a hard time thinking that it's really directly trying to plagiarize from the story uh, that Martin Luther King uh, obviously shared in, in, the, in this interview. So that's why I'm with you at the same time. Having said that, I still love the memes. Like, frankly, yeah. the memes alone made it worthwhile. That office meme hysterical was classic. Great. I love it. Maybe the meme of 2021 so far. It, it may be. So, you know, typically, yeah, because of my own sort of political biases, I tend to like look at more of the liberal memes than the, than the conservative. But this one, I got to give them credit. Whoever, whoever did this one, they yeah. nailed it. So the I, right I love does it. meme pretty well. That's one of the things they do well. Okay. So then we're, we're, um, 60, the dreaded 66% then, um, which is good. I'll yeah, take that. I'll, I'll take that it. to open up the year. Very good. It. Any uh, any parting words on this episode? Our first of 2021? Um, yeah. I guess the only thing is, like, look, we didn't actually talk about this at all. But today on January 5th, which is when we're recording this, um, we're now 7 o'clock at night, is uh, is actually when we're having the, the, the Senate runoff elections in, in Georgia. Oh, in Georgia. That's right. Um, so it's really interesting what's going to happen in the next couple of days. The reason we don't really want to talk about it, because literally happening as, as, we, as we're speaking, and look, the way the last election happened... We may not know the results for another week or more than that. So we'll see how that goes. And then tomorrow is, you know, is going to be the, the certification of the Electoral College, right, that happens in, in Congress. And that's the one that I'm very curious to see what happens. Uh, ultimately, I don't think the outcome changes in any way whatsoever. But I guess the only thing, my only parting words is I really hope this is the last step, literally the last step, for us to be able to start the process moving forward. Right. Because there's been so much drama. There was the whole drama around this, uh, which I also found pretty hilarious. This call that, that President Trump had with um, with. Um, oh, that's next week's show. Come on. Don't ruin yeah, it. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, that, that just happened with the secretary of state. For secretary Georgia. of state. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Uh, which was hilarious. Um, but I just hope that we're at a point now where we are starting to move forward. I think what happens today, what happens tomorrow will be really, really interesting. And um, I'm frankly looking forward. Well, what to happens today on the runoff and what happens tomorrow when Congress counts the electoral votes? Because that's correct. the other big thing that happens. Yeah, There's going to be a lot of news. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it more next week. But yeah, my only word, it's not even a word of wisdom. I'm just like hopeful that we're at the last stages of this transition in this political time that hopefully, you know, sets us to a, a little better path of less. Um, you know, conflict between each other. We can start moving forward together as a country. I love it. Very good. My, my only parting words are, uh, you know, maybe just a little reminder and inspiration for for everybody based on my own little affirmations of courage, clarity, and communication. I think that those are good things for maybe all of us to uh, 
to bring to bear on 2021, especially the clarity and communication part. I think we need to you know, continue to have conversations and dialogue, and that's a good thing. So my hope is 2021 is that year of bringing, yes, this thing being over, but also being the birth of, a, of conversations around uh, topics that we may or may not agree with, um, but doing it in a way that's respectful. And I think that's a good thing. That'll, uh, that'll help uh, all of us across the board. That's my, that's my hope as we get started. Love it. Cool. All right. Well, that's a wrap for uh, episode one of 2021. Thank you. See us uh, next week on another episode of TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez, with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.